0: Free will is the idea that you have the power to choose, to select between alternatives, to take different paths in life, that your life is not determined by antecedent factors, whether they're your genes, your past environments, the alignment of the planets before you were born, or something else still. But for a long time, scientifically-minded intellectuals have argued that to think that human beings have free will is to remain under the sway of some kind of religious worldview. Are they right about that? A recent podcast by Sam Harris, the uh, prominent public intellectual, gives us a good chance to think about the reasons they usually give for thinking that we don't have any free will. Welcome to New Idea Live, uh, the podcast of the Ayn Rand Institute. My name is Ben Baer. I'm a fellow at ARI. Today, we're going to be discussing this question, why Sam Harris is wrong about free will. Uh, With me is Ankar Ghatay, ARI's senior fellow. Hi, Ankar. Hi, Ben. And as usual, today, we're going to be taking questions from the audience as we go along, uh, mostly from two sources, the Zoom Q&A module, and from Super Chat on YouTube, if you'd like to sponsor this channel. So a little bit about how we're going to proceed today. Um, Sam Harris wrote this book back in 2012 about why he thought there was no free will. Um, One of the reasons that we wanted to have this discussion again uh, this this week was because he recently released a podcast uh, from his Making Sense podcast, where he recapitulated some of the reasons that he gives for uh, that that he gives in his book, so it's a recent uh, articulation of his original argument that's been injected back into discourse again. So we're we're actually going to listen to uh, a number of excerpts from that podcast uh, directly on this podcast and comment directly on them. Um, we're basically going to go chronologically in the order of the points that he makes himself. Um, this is not necessarily maybe the best order, logically speaking, for digging into this topic, but we wanted to be kind of faithful to the uh, the, the argument as he's giving it. Um, Ankar, did you want to say anything else before we d- dive into some of these clips?
1: My impression after watching the video, I've read the book, uh, that there's nothing new in the video, but part of what he's trying to do is distill it down into Here's my final thoughts, kind of a summary thoughts. There's some new examples. Um, So it's worth watching the video as a kind of a distillation of his arguments in the book.
0: And it's not a video, it's audio. So We're only gonna get audio clips today, but um, you'll have to to imagine that he's uh, presenting these in front of us. Um, So I'll go, I'll dive right in. And um, the first two uh, clips, uh, we'll stop after each one, but the first two are basically his primary arguments against free will. And he gives two different arguments, starting with what I will uh, call the argument from causality. And here goes the first one.
2: Of course, there's very little disagreement over the fact that events have causes. Everything that arises seems to be born into existence by some previous state of the universe. Most of the time, things certainly seem to happen. Lightning strikes a tree and a fire starts. A few lines of computer code cause your phone to ring. People are born, they grow old, and then they die. Everywhere we look, we see patterns of events and all these events have prior causes, which is to say they depend materially and functionally and logically on other events that preceded them in time. And most relevantly for our purposes, All of our conscious experiences—our thoughts, intentions, desires, and the actions and choices that result from them—are caused by events of which we are not conscious, and which we did not bring into being. You didn't pick your parents, you didn't pick your genes, therefore, and you didn't pick the environment into which you were born, and yet the totality of these facts determines who you are in each moment, and what you do in the next. And even if you think that you have an immaterial soul that somehow animates this machinery, you didn't pick your soul. The next thing you think and do can only emerge from this totality of prior causes. And it can only emerge in one of two ways lawfully. That is deterministically like one domino, just getting knocked over by another or randomly.
0: Okay. So, uh, number of things to unpack in there. And that's just the first of his two arguments. I think the second one we'll look at is a little bit more distinctive to him. But I mean, one thing that I think one should notice about what he's saying there is that it's being presented as an argument from the fact that the universe is subject to cause and effect. And of course, we and our thoughts are part of the universe. But the way that he presents the premise of his argument here, the the way that he presents the idea of universal causality is I think notably slanted in a way that sort of jam packs his conclusion into his premises where he's, he's more or less equating cause and effect with a very specific kind of a very specific view of cause and effect, a kind of deterministic kind of causality, where, yeah, if that's the way you define it, um, you're 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 going to end up ruling out free will pretty much by stipulation. Um, and he does at one point in a part that I didn't excerpt uh, elaborate by saying, uh, well, even if there's randomness of some kind metaphysically in the universe, he still thinks that isn't a basis for free will. And I think he's right about that, but the part of his argument where he's, where he's stressing causation equals no free will, because deterministic. Um, yeah, Ankar, I know you have some thoughts on this. Uh, I've heard you lecture at length about the particular notion of causation that he's assuming here. Did you want to say more?
1: Yes. The, what struck me from this podcast, even more so than in the book, is how Humean his view is. So Humean means David Hume's philosophy. So how much it is a reiteration of what Hume said. And I think this the whole perspective on causality is Hume's perspective. And if you know philosophy and the history of philosophy, Hume's view is one account of cause and effect. It's not synonymous with every account. There's different accounts. There's accounts that reject the way David Hume conceptualizes cause and effect, and Ayn Rand in objectivism is one philosophy that rejects it. So the, the, why is it so easy for Harris to go from there's cause and effect to there's determinism, which means that it's antecedent causes, antecedent factors that produce the present And so you can go back and back and back, and you can go to a time that you weren't even born. And what happened then is gonna determine whether you have a cup of coffee or a tea today. Um, And everything about your life, you can trace back to even before you were born. And everything you do is determined by that, by these prior factors. That's what he's equating, that if you accept cause and effect, you have to accept that view of human beings and everything else in existence. And what it relies on is that cause and effect is about events. His whole concept, there's events. So an event is things happening, is, is sort of the, the way he characterizes it. And, it. and he puts something like, well, they, things seem to happen. And if you have one event, that's what you have. And if the cause is the previous event, then the cause is something prior. And the cause of that event is a previous event. And so your whole notion of cause and effect is inherently temporal like this. And it's to look for a cause is to look into the past for why the present is what it's like. But there's a whole different view of cause and effect that says um, what it's about is things acting. It's about entities in the world, a bird flying, a squirrel running across uh, the yard. I was just looking in my backyard uh, this morning and thinking, like, what are all the causal relationships you see? And this is the kind of stuff I I back up onto a forest. You see birds flying around, um, flapping in the bird bath. You see squirrels running across the grass. We have a windsock. You see it in the wind blowing. And if you think of cause and effect, it's things doing stuff. It's the cause is the thing and what it is. The bird's able to fly because what it is, it has wings which it's beating, it's aerodynamic. And the action is it's traveling through the air, it's not land bound. Um, And it's then the cause and the effect are simultaneous. It's the thing acting. And if you think of it like this, and this is really in a wide sense, the Aristotelian way of looking at cause and effect that it's about things acting and it's stress, Ayn Rand stresses that this is the way That you conceptualize cause and effect. If you do that, you can equate cause and effect with causes or antecedent factors and what it is about tracing back in time um, to the prior event and the prior event and the prior event. You don't think about cause and effect in terms of events, it's things that act. That's the phenomenon, not one event followed by another.
0: And then that's going to have some important implications for how we think about free will, right? Because the the objectivist view at least, Ayn Rand's view is very far from the idea that free will is some exception to causation, to, to the law of causality. It's very much assumed to be a special instance of it and uh, everything that we do, uh, everything that we choose is caused by something. It is, it is caused by us uh, that, that the agent is the source of the causation. Uh, somebody, uh, we, we, got a, we got a super chat donation. Uh, someone asks, can man's volitional consciousness be a cause? And I think the answer here, at least from Ayn Rand's perspective, is very much yes, That that there is something in the nature of our consciousness that causes us to face a choice. And then when we make a choice, we are the ones who are doing it. Um, now there's a question of who is, who's the, what is the eye that is doing that? And that's going to be something that comes up in, uh,
1: Harris's later argument, but, um, yeah. And I'd say that's part of what's interesting that it, though he puts cause and effect in terms of events, he has a sense in the background that it's really about an agent and an agent choosing or an agent selecting, so, so that he's got to attack the idea that there's an agent and that's in the video he's going to go on to, no, there's no you there to make any choices, there's no agent. Um, and on his view of cause and effect, you don't really need that argument. It's already erased all the agents, it's just events, and event, but he knows at an implicit level that, yeah, that's not exactly true. And I want to say
0: one other thing about this first argument because it's very much a part of it that because you didn't choose your soul, you didn't choose your parents, you didn't choose your genes even, that that's, that's supposed to be a reason for why we don't have free will. But this is, this is reading quite a lot into the idea of what free will is supposed to be by anyone. Does anyone actually think that for you to have free will you basically need to have been a God who creates the universe ex nihilo and therefore creates yourself and all of the conditions around it. I don't think so. Um, What free will is as we were suggesting at the beginning is, yes, it is the idea that you are the source of your actions, but in the sense that you are the one who makes the difference between possible alternatives, that you, could have done otherwise. And it's it's very much consistent with the idea of being able to do otherwise, being able to make a difference between alternatives, that you're doing that, um, and that your ability to do that even uh, comes from what you've already been given, that which itself you didn't, weren't the source of. You come into the world with a certain nature, with an ability to make certain choices, with, the, with certain abilities, certain capacities, And all that free will is, is your power to make a difference over two possible outcomes. In Ayn Rand's view, it's it's the power to choose to think or not to think. Um, That characterization of what free will is, is actually going to also make a difference for how we think about his second argument, because I think he's very much looking in the wrong place for what kind of
1: alternative uh, free will is going to amount to.
0: Do you have anything else to say before I go to...
1: Yeah, one other thing, just to touch on something you just brought up, and it, I've seen this a little bit in the YouTube chat, that people worry, and it's right to have this kind of worry, that um, we're going to present a straw man of Harris's argument. Part of the reason we're giving like fairly lengthy excerpts is we want to give the argument as he's giving it, so we're not mischaracterizing it. But you should have the same worry if you're a fan of Harris. as Is he strawmanning the position he's disagreeing with? And the, 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 you didn't pick your parents. Is there really anyone who says, no, you did choose your parents? So it can't be that we're literally saying that. Or, so is it, he would have to argue, well, no, but it's a consequence. It's a logical implication of the position that you're saying you choose your parents. And I'd like to see the argument for why it's a logical uh, implication of, uh, say of Ayn Rand's view of free will that it's, well, what she has to end up saying is that you chose who your parents are. Um, and I don't think you can make that argument. So you should be sensitive about straw man arguments for everybody. Good, so let's let's go to
0: the the next argument he gives. And actually we just got a very generous super chat donation asking about this next argument. And I'll, I'll read the question because it's a good setup. One thing Harris has said about the introspection argument is that during meditation, he can see that free will is an illusion and that the self itself doesn't exist. That makes no sense, but would love to hear your thoughts. Well, yeah, let's take a look at where he says this. Now, technically one one thing you're gonna see is he doesn't really say that free will is an illusion because an illusion at least implies there's a certain experience that suggests that we have free will. And one of the things he thinks is distinctive to his argument uh, it, which I don't think went out in our initial advertising copy about this, is that he doesn't even think that we have this experience to begin with. Um, and I think he's right that that is more distinctive to what he's saying. I don't think he's totally original. I think Schopenhauer made a similar argument. I don't know if he's aware of that, but anyway, let's let's go ahead and listen to his account of, and you can you can tell that what he's, the way he's describing this here is sort of akin to asking us to meditate together. Uh, And so take a deep breath and and, uh, let him take us through this experience. Here we
2: go. Again, I want to flag what is novel about my argument here. Most philosophers and scientists believe we have an experience of free will that is undeniable. And the challenge is to make sense of it in terms of a picture of causality that seems not to allow for it, whether that's deterministic or random. I'm claiming that we don't have the experience we think we have there is no experience of free will. So let's look more closely at our experience. Consider how your thoughts arise, because they're the basis for most of your complex behavior, certainly your most deliberate behavior. If you pay attention to the process of thinking, you'll see that your thoughts simply appear in consciousness, very much like my words. In fact, you can observe that you no more decide the next thing you think than you decide the next thing I say. What are you going to think next? You don't know. Yet your thoughts determine what you want and intend and do next. Your thoughts determine your goals and whether or not you believe you've met them. They determine what you say to other people and what you don't say. In fact, thoughts determine almost everything that makes you human. Now, most people feel that they are the thinker of their thoughts, and therefore their author. And this is one way of describing the feeling of self. Subjectively speaking, as a matter of experience, there's no thinker to be found in the mind, apart from thoughts themselves. There's no subject in the middle of experience. Everything, including thoughts and intentions and counter-thoughts and counter-intentions, is arising all on its own. And the feeling that there's a thinker in addition to the flow of thought is what it feels like to be thinking without knowing that you're thinking. It's the feeling of being identified with the train of thought that's passing through consciousness in this moment. But if you pay attention to how thoughts arise, you'll see that they simply appear quite literally out of nowhere, and you're not free to choose them before they appear. That would require that you think them before you think them. So here's the question. If you can't control your next thought, if you can't decide what it will be before it arises, and if you can't prevent it from arising, where is your freedom of will? At this moment, you might be thinking, what the hell is he talking about?
0: Okay, so what, what is he talking about? Um, a, a few observations occur to me uh, from about this little meditation. One, one is, again, that I think there's a lot of building in of his conclusion to his own description of his experience. He talks even in his initial set of observations about how your thoughts determine what you want and intend to do next, and your thoughts determine your goal. And he talks elsewhere about each of the thoughts being determined by uh, unconscious factors. But there's also, to me, uh, and this, I think, gets to your point earlier, Ankar, about a kind of straw man position, uh, a straw man description of what the theory of free will is actually supposed to mean. And you have him saying, you don't know what your next thought is going to be, which to me, uh, he seems to be assuming that free will would be prediction of the future, which is a very strange assumption isn't isn't the whole idea of free will in a way supposed to be that you don't make predictions, that you can't make predictions that you could do either and then you make the choice. Um, now, then I suppose there's a, a separate question of well, then why wouldn't it be random and we can talk about that but uh, there's again a straight like I don't I've never seen anyone characterize uh, the position of free will in this particular way that he's attacking. So it's, it, it does strike me as having a straw man character to it. And then, yeah, here you saw this discussion of, of the idea that there's no agent, there's no self, we're just sort of waiting in the stream of our experience, and we are that stream, and uh, there's no thinker to be my, found in the mind apart from the thoughts themselves. What's this mind that we're talking about? But without being too picky um, uh, on that last point, what are
1: your overall reactions to this uh, meditation. So I have again, just as his description of the external world in terms of cause and effect, it has, it does not um, conceptualize properly, I think at all my experience of the world, uh, my awareness of the world. So that the way I think of cause and effect and what you actually observe that you're conceptualizing as cause and effect is not event, previous event, previous event. So when he turns inward, and it's asking you not now to look outward at the world, but look inward at the operations of your mind, his conceptualization of what is going on and sort of his description of it is, I find it completely alien. It is not at all the way I introspect the, what is going on in my mind. And I think this is, if other people introspect, it will be, yeah, this is not what is going on. And part of it, so just as he has event, as this is the kind of way I'm going to conceptualize things in the external world. So there's not things, there's just events. So internally, it's he conceptualizes it in terms of there's experience. That's not the right way to conceptualize consciousness. Consciousness is awareness. It's primarily awareness of the world external to you and the things in it and the things acting and interacting. And you can turn inward, you can turn that awareness inward and think like, what is going on in my mind? But when you do that, what you have and what you can observe is there's my awareness and then my processing of my awareness. And the awareness itself is a process that, to perceive the world and so I have to walk around, turn my head, direct my eyes, listen for things it's an active process and when he's saying it's uh, which i think is true that what makes us most human is our ability to think this is an active process as well so his example of you know you don't know any more what you're going to think than what sam harris is going to say next my experience is no that's a completely false in a thought process i'm directing it and controlling it Right now, I'm doing a podcast. I have 10 other things that are pressing that I need to do. I'm saying, no, I'm not going to pay attention to those right now. This is what I'm focused on. This is what I'm dealing with. And we're focused on Sam Harris's arguments. This is what, this is the process that's going on in my mind. And I'm controlling and directing it. And, And once in a while, when you're talking, something comes up from my subconscious. Well, what about, you know, you're supposed to be doing this as well. Yeah, that's for later, I tell myself. And that's what it means to be directing my thoughts. And that's exactly what I can't do for Sam Harris. And this is why often when you're thinking and you've got someone talking to you, you experience it like I, can, I need to direct my thought and you're sort of intruding. But my thought process is not my mind intruding on me or something. It, it's just completely false, I think, in terms of conceptualizing and describing what is going on in one's mind. The whole thing about thinking is you can direct it and you can control it. That doesn't mean control every aspect of it. And that's again, the straw man that he seems to think to control it would be to control every aspect. And we
0: appreciate your focus and attention <laughs> to this topic. And I had several ideas just then that I, I thought maybe I should say something, and but I'm going actually not. Uh, I'm going to stick with what I planned on saying, which okay. was to point out that, well, ok, yes, there is a uh, there's a very active process involved in in thinking as opposed to let's say the operation of your your heart or your lungs which is actually a, a, a difference that he notices at one point in a, in a different part of the podcast but he he does give us a little bit more uh, of his own introspection of what he experiences when he's thinking and uh, i at least from the way he describes it he doesn't quite agree with the way that you just described it, let's let's hear what he has to say. Uh, he proposes that we engage in a little thought experiment with him, um, and this time, an experiment with our thoughts. So here goes.
2: Let's run a little experiment. Just close your eyes and take a few deep breaths. And now think of a movie can be one you've seen, or just one you know the name of. And you can pick anyone you want. And you can pause this audio and take as long as you want. Now let's do that again. All right, I want you to become sensitive to this process. So forget the first film and choose another. And again, pay attention to what you actually experience here. What is it like to choose? What is it like to make this completely free choice? You got a new film? Okay, do it one more time, right? Just clean the slate, think of a few more films, and choose one. Did you see any evidence for free will here? Because if it's not here, it's not anywhere, right? So we better be able to find it here. So let's look for it. So consider the few films that came to mind, right? In light of all the films that might have come to mind, but didn't and ask yourself, were you free to choose that, which did not occur to you to choose as a matter of neurophysiology, your wizard of Oz circuits were not in play a few moments ago for reasons that you can't possibly know and could not control. Based on the state of your brain, The Wizard of Oz was not an option, even though you absolutely know about this film. And if we could return your brain to the state it was in a moment ago, and account for all the noise in the system, adding back any contributions of randomness, whatever they were, you would fail to think of The Wizard of Oz again and again and again until the end of time. Where is the freedom in that? It's important to see that whether the universe is fully determined or it admits of randomness, the picture is the same. Determinism gives you no freedom, obviously. It would just be mere biochemical clockwork. But randomness gives you no freedom either. If you knew that your next choice of a film would be the result of a random process, some quantum roll of the dice, that would be the antithesis of what most people mean by free will it is likely that every other choice you have made in your life has been more constrained than this one. What job to take, who to marry, whether to have kids, who to vote for. Most choices in life are much more obviously constrained by other variables than this one.
0: And I thought that there was a little bit more to that, but I think uh, it got cut out for some reason, but we got the essence of it. Um, That last thing that he said uh, was, I thought particularly remarkable. And I'll I'll read the rest of what he was gonna be in it. So if you're not free to simply pick a film right now, I don't know where you're going to find free will anywhere in your life. So really pay attention to the experience, do it one more time, pick a film, any film. Um, I picked Shanghai Noon. Uh, was my first one, very lowbrow compared to some of the other examples he discusses. But that's because we watched it this last weekend. Pretty good. But what struck me as, as remarkable here was that this is what he really thinks the best example of a free will choice would be, the pick a random film example. Uh, all the other examples that he mentioned of types of choices that you could make. Um, what job to take, who, who to marry, whether to have kids, who to vote for, et cetera. These strike me as much better examples of the kinds of choices that we do have free will control over, because they're the ones where you're actually consciously deliberating pros and cons. What are the good reasons? What are the bad reasons? I really don't understand why he thinks those are the choices that are more constrained. Uh, is is his view? Well, in those cases, they're more constrained because you're you're you have reasons for the choices that you make. Well, it, that's true in the best cases. Um, some people don't uh, bring reason to bear on those kinds of questions in the way that we would hope that they would, and that is what gets to the issue. And I'm sure you'll have more to say about this on car about w- where should we be looking in our thoughts for what the evidence of free will actually is. Is it the choice of content among types of thoughts to think, like which movie to watch, uh, or even which um, candidate to vote for, or is it something deeper? Because again, not everybody actually brings reason to bear on the question of whom to vote for, whom to marry. And that seems to be a significant issue.
1: Yes, I think that Well, that's the fundamental issue, certainly from Ayn Rand or objectivism's perspective. So that theory of free will, it's you have to look deeper. You can put it kind of metaphorically. You have to look deeper at what your fundamental locus of control is over your mind. And I don't think it's about picking pieces of content. It's about the this is why you put it earlier. She formulates it as a choice to think or not. So it's a choice to engage in a certain kind of processing, of to engage in thinking, to engage in reasoning or not. You can sort of drift along, you can decide in effect that you're gonna follow the crowd and what everybody else thinks. You can say, you can choose not to engage in a lot of mental processing firsthand. But even if you take his, what this, this experiment is and you ask, where do you find free will in this? I think there's many points. So, and I'll tell you, I, so I, I listened to this whole uh, podcast. And so it, when it, this, it, it, it was, okay, I'm gonna, I want you to run a sort of My experiment. My reaction was, okay, it's gonna be another stupid thought experiment. I've studied philosophy. I've seen a lot of these things that I think don't show anything like what they think they're going to show. I'm not going to even do this. And then I thought, no, okay, we're going to be talking about this. So let me treat it the most sympathetically and I'll do this. That's a choice. I'm selecting between alternatives. And if you're taking it, it's a choice you're selecting. Part of the implication is, yes, I could have selected something else, but this is what I selected. And I've given some of the reasons for why I selected it. But most fundamentally, I was thinking about it. And then it's, if we're going to do a podcast on this, it's, you have to treat it as sympathetically and take it as seriously as you can. So I'm going to run this experiment. So I, here's the, the, and you characterize it as pick some random films. I don't know what random means in that context. I took it as pick some films, but it's important because his contrast is, well, what free will would mean is random. And it's, pick some films. It's obviously going to be films I know about, not films I don't know. How am I going to pick a film I don't know about? So if you call that, well, it's constraint. Is that really free will? I'm still selecting. It's pick a film. And that means pick a film I know about. Here's the two that came to mind for me, Casablanca and Tombstone. For both, I could give a reason for why it came to mind. Casablanca is one of my favorite films. So I don't find it surprising that if someone says, pick a film, one of your favorites comes up. And the other was Tombstone, similar to, I hadn't just watched it, but I had just had a conversation about, with someone about the film a day or two ago. So that that's when it's, pick a film that it's kind of quickly comes to mind, that these two come to mind, I don't find at all surprising or mysterious. And then it was, I have to select one of these, because I'm supposed to pick one. So what am I going to select? And it was, I could pick Casablanca, but that's too standard. It, and so, and what's this thought experiment going to be? And so, so I picked Tombstone and where's the free will in that? Well, I'm selecting between two movies. I'm supposed to pick one and this is the one I'm selecting. I can again, give you what the processing is that I went through. And it's like, why is this that it's, if you, if there's no, if you can't find free will here, you can't find it anywhere. Yeah. You're obviously making choices in it. So when he says there's not even an illusion, What that means is when he's describing this kind of experiment, he says, like, where are you making choices? That's what it means. The the illusion would mean it seems like you're making choices, but you're not really. But his view is it doesn't even seem like you're making choices. Well, it certainly seems like it to me that I'm making choices. Indeed, I am making choices. And there's
0: there's an excerpt that we didn't end up playing uh, where he goes into this a little bit further and he talks about something kind of like the process that you just described where two options occur to him and he he picks between the two of them but at that point the uh the target starts to move a bit because so he says well i could have picked alien or i could have picked chinatown uh i like alien better chinatown though they say is a classic um but he so he but he picks the one which he thinks isn't boring which is alien and then rather than saying, well, that wasn't really a choice or that wasn't actually at least an illusion, he says, yes, but they've done, science, they've done scientific studies that show when people uh, make choices that the reasons that they cite for picking them are not really the reasons um, that they think that they have. Um, but that, that is kind of changing the subject, isn't it? Uh, to, from you know, yeah. what actually caused it to whether, you're actually, whether you actually have the experience of making the choice
1: um that's much more in the vein that it's an illusion and not that there's nothing even to suggest the thought that you might have free will and we'll say uh more still i think why
0: uh we should we should take that experience on face value rather than seeing it as an illusion but i mean one other thing i did want to point out about this kind of thought experiment that he gives where i mean so you mentioned it's 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 the assignment was pick a movie, but he didn't give us a purpose uh, like this is the movie you're now going to watch uh, or something like that. Or this is the movie you're now going to write a review of. It was, it was simply uh, make a random choice of a movie with, with random with respect to any purpose. And the reason that I thought that was significant was because this is very similar to uh, in his book, uh, a set of scientific studies that he cites in favor of his position, which have been widely cited by critics of free will. Uh, These are the so-called Libet experiments. Uh, Benjamin Libet did these experiments where um, they ask people to basically flick their wrists at a random time, uh, and then try to remember when they made that decision. And then they write down the time uh, and they do this systematically. And what they end up discovering is they find, uh, they find that there's some activity in the, in the neural cortex or whatever that occurs microseconds before the The person thinks they remember having made the decision, and I mean, there's a lot to say about uh, why I think this argument and this evidence doesn't really provide evidence for the denial of free will. Um, I wrote about this in, in an article that we published. But I mean, one thing that's noteworthy about it is again that uh, what the person's being ass- that the task that the experimental subject is being assigned to do is again to just is to pick a random time to flick their wrist uh, with no specific purpose in mind. And so there's a question here of, well, when I give myself the task to do something that doesn't have a specific reason attached to it, when I'm asked, and if I think there's a good reason to comply with the experiment, how do I decide to do that? I mean, I think it's true. there's, There's no reason I can give or that I'm aware of for when I flick my wrist or not, But I think that's in the nature of the particular assignment. And that's something very idiosyncratic about this kind of choice. Like I'm in effect telling myself, okay, let my unconscious brain processes pick this for me uh, and and we'll see what happens. But that's not where I see the kind of paradigm uh, uh, case of free will actually operating. Where it's operating is where I'm listening to the instructions of the experiment, deciding, do I want to actually participate in this experiment? Is there a good reason to do it? Uh, And that's where I'm the one who's making uh, the difference over whether I'm going to do one thing or not. And that's, I think, analogous to what you were describing when you were thinking about um deciding whether to play this movie game or not, because like you're you're playing the game for the purpose of illustrating something philosophical for your audience. and that's that's, I think where you would, you know you probably had the the fundamental control. any further yeah. reactions to that?
1: Yeah, no, I, I think that's that that's important in the the setup of those experiments. And there are situations in life that you you put it turning it over to your unconscious brain. I put it more, you're turning it over to your subconscious. So, and all thinking is there's an the element of what you're directing it. Cause it's an activity of process that you're controlling and directing, but there's elements of it that are from your subconscious. So it's you, I can direct, okay, let me think about a movie I know, but it's true that it comes from my subconscious of what comes up and, um, Gone with the Wind, for instance, didn't come up for me. And it, it might be because I hate the movie or I, I mean, I don't hate is probably too strong, but I didn't like it. Um, so there are, there are aspects that are not, I'm not choosing what's going to come up from my subconscious. I'm giving myself a question and in fact, select a movie, but all thinking is like that. And it doesn't show that you're not in control of the aspects you're in control of because there's aspects that are subconscious and when, when you mull an issue or kind of brainstorm, often what you do is you let your subconscious, just like, what does it come up with if I sort of um, am not directing my mind too much? But that's a very distinct experience and very different from when I am directing my mind. Um, and so the, the, this is a phenomenon that is known about thinking. It's certainly known in objective circles, but not only in objective circles. And it, there's again, too much of a straw manning of if there's some element that the subconscious in, is involved then it means there's no conscious control and that doesn't follow.
0: We're getting a lot of questions and I'm, I'm, I'm putting the reminder up on the screen for people who still want to submit questions uh, that uh, how, how they can do it. Um, Ankar, we had two excerpts left but I'm thinking maybe now given time maybe we should go straight to the last one about self-refutation and skip over the morality one? So let's, yeah, I, let's I think that's, do that. That's, the morality one's not actually very interesting. Yeah. Okay, so last major excerpt from Sam Harris. And this is, this is where he's responding to a kind of, uh, I think a common criticism of the kind of position that he's just described. So here goes.
2: People sometimes ask, well, if there's no free will, then why are you trying to convince anyone of anything? People are just gonna believe whatever they believe your very effort to convince them that they don't have free will is proof that you think they have it. Again, this is confusion between determinism and fatalism. Reasoning is possible, not because you're free to think however you want, but because you are not free. Reason makes slaves of us all. To be convinced by an argument is to be subjugated by it. It's to be forced to believe it, regardless of your preferences. Think about what it's like not to know something and then to know it. To learn something despite your prior ignorance or presuppositions to the contrary. To be placed in the grip of an argument that is valid and true. To be led step by step over foreign ground without spotting an error without seeing any place to put a foot or a hand to arrest your progress, to then be delivered to the necessary conclusion is the antithesis of freedom. You're about as free as any prisoner who has ever led to the gallows. It's the lack of freedom that makes reasoning possible. That's why I know an argument that worked on me should also work on you. And if it shouldn't work on you, it shouldn't have worked on me either. Reasoning is all about constraints. Two plus two equals four. Where's the freedom in that? It matters that two plus two equals four. And it matters that we each can be made to understand that by being forced to think under the same logical constraints. Are you free not to understand that two plus two equals four? Not if you do, in fact, understand it. Are you free to understand it? If you don't understand it, again, no, right? Not until the understanding itself dawns in your mind. So whether you understand something or not isn't under your control, but the difference matters. Absolutely. And knowledge on all fronts matters. Absolutely. It's every bit as important as we imagine it to be.
0: So this, I think, was super interesting. Um, it's so this is the one thing I think that comes up in his podcast that is not in the book, and so you get the sense that this is this is the kind of criticism that he received from a lot of people about the book. And I think it's probably a good thing that he did receive this kind of criticism. Um, and it's the, the 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 upshot of this criticism, I think, is probably. Uh, more significant than he realizes. Because what the what the critic is saying here is not simply uh, that your effort to convince them that they don't have free will is proof that you think that they have it. I mean, that's maybe one thing that you could say about this, that he's got some kind of uh, double standard. But um, think about one line that he uh, gives in particular after saying reasoning is about being constrained. He says, uh, that's why I know an argument that worked on me should also work on you, and if it shouldn't work on you, it shouldn't have worked on me either. And I want to know what is the what is the force of this should here. Is is he saying, in effect, when he makes this argument against free will, you really should listen to the logic of uh, the argument that I'm giving, and. If you if you aren't listening, if you don't accept it, if you've not been dragged along by the force of my logic, it's that you don't understand what I'm saying. But then whether you understand something or not isn't under your control. So is he saying for those of us who don't understand him and therefore don't agree, since that wasn't up to us, that wasn't under our control? Uh, we can't be blamed for failing to see the logic of his argument. But then what the heck is the point of making arguments if it's not to criticize the people who fail to see the logic? Like the upshot of this criticism is is deeper than he suggests because what it's getting at is that if you accept determinism, if you deny free will, it's not that... um, it's not simply that you are maybe implicitly assuming that other people have it in the course of making it, but that it's, it's that if you really take seriously that we don't have it, you can't make sense of the whole idea of a logical norm, of the idea that there are ways we should think to know the truth and, and that people who don't make those choices, the people who don't try to understand are doing things that they shouldn't do. Uh, odd implies can, and if there's no possibility that you could embrace the understanding that he's trying to get us to, what's the point of criticizing? I don't know, do you have further thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, so I think what you're raising is the most fundamental issue. And if we put it in terms of a positive that, and we look at it from the perspective of Ayn Rand's theory of free will, that it's a choice to think or not. It, what that means, it's a choice to engage in rational processing. So, the, the, we, you can, he, so he puts it in terms of an argument that should work. And you're rightly asking, what does the should mean here? He has to know that people have been convinced by bad arguments. And he has to know that people have not been convinced by good arguments, or put it in a little differently. They've been convinced by irrational arguments and they have not been convinced by rational arguments. And is that an indictment of the argument or is it an indictment just of the person? It's just so happens the antecedent factors that are controlling him, make it that he's not going to uh, accept this argument even though it's a rational one or he's gonna accept this one because it's irrational. What you're saying is that the person is fundamentally out of control of his mental processing. And so how does Sam Harris know that he's being rational? That's just another idea that he will have. And maybe it's because, well, his grandmother drank pineapple juice when he was 12. And as a result, this is what he now is determined to say and to think and to hold. And he he doesn't know what it is. So Ayn Rand's view of free will is how do you know you're being rational it's because you can choose to be, you can set as your basic mental processing. I'm going to focus on the evidence and proceed logically to the best of my ability and so on. And I can know that I've done that as a result and then say, yeah, I view my conclusion as reached by reason because I chose to engage in a process of reasoning. And that's what he cannot say. And notice how, so this is a lesser point, but it's still significant if you're thinking about Harris's argument. Notice how different what he says here is from what we've been looking at previously. So it's previously, I have no idea what thoughts will occur to me next. I have no idea what I'm gonna think or say next. That's his basic picture of human beings because it's determined by antecedent factors you don't know which antecedent factors determine it. So we don't have this kind of sophisticated knowledge that you can predict for various people. Oh yeah, this person's gonna think this and that person's gonna think that. As a, There's nothing like that. So he's right to say, it's if it's caused by things that are antecedent, you don't know which particular ones are causing you to think what you think. You don't know what you're gonna do next. So, it's, so his basic portrait is you're fundamentally out of control. And now when he gets to, yeah, but when we're talking about determinism and free will and having a view about this, no, it's like step-by-step logic. You're forced, you're necessitated. You can say what all the causes were. that are, And it's a completely contradictory picture of it's It's, no, you can't know, you're not in control and you can't know what you're doing or why. Oh, but you can when we're talking about free will and determinism and, say, and you can know that it's, you're being caused by good arguments. And it's just, it's completely inconsistent.
0: It's the what they call the fallacy of self-exclusion, um, and there was a there was another p- part of the podcast that we didn't excerpt where he talks about uh, reading an article about why one should learn Mandarin, and he says that I can't account for why after having read this article I still don't want to speak it. I can't decide to make learning this language my top priority when it simply isn't my top priority. And if, I suddenly became the most, if it suddenly became the most important thing in, in my life, I wouldn't have created this change in myself. But he says at the end of the day, he doesn't, he's not able to account for why this article had the effect or didn't have the effect that it did. And the question that I think should occur to somebody when they hear him give that example then is, well, what, what do you think is my perspective with respect to your book? or with respect to whatever article you read about free will or determinism that make you that made you think that there was no free will. Is it also the case that you can't account for why th- this argument made you believe in determinism and it didn't make somebody else? But then this is your point, Ankar, that, that it sounds like he's saying, we adopt the philosophic views that we adopt for reasons we can't understand, but then why should we suppose that what we believe has any kind of mark of logic or objectivity to it. If we're not the ones who have decided to be objective and who've decided to, uh, to make our arguments uh, pay attention to the facts and the truth, why do, we, why do we think that ours are any better than anybody else's?
1: Yeah, and so specifically for this issue, why well, think his uh, advocacy of determinism is any better, any superior than the people like us who advocate free will. And that he, there's no answer to that in his theory, really.
0: So we've gotten a number of questions. I think we should turn to at least a few of them before we start to wrap up. Um, yes. I have them in the, in the spreadsheet. Um, and some of these we have uh, touched on a bit uh, one person asked, and I, I think they probably asked this around the time that we were talking about how you didn't choose your soul according to him, and we, we talked about how there's an assumption of a kind of ex nihilo creation that's unwarranted there, but the person's observing, could you still say something about how man has a self-made soul? I assume he's referencing the objectivist idea there, and what might Sam Harris think of the, Of this? Uh, what do you think of this? Uh, you wrote an article, on car in the Companion to Ayn Rand called A Being of Self-Made Soul, which touches on this quite a bit, um, how does that view compare and contrast with the creation ex nihilo idea that he's kind of straw manning?
1: Well, l- let me say something about the self-made soul. Maybe Ben, you can say something about the k- kind of straw manning that's going on because I think it's important to get that here we're, we're specifically talking about Ayn Rand's theory of free will in contrast to Sam Harris's theory of, that we're determined Ayn Rand's theory of free will is distinctive in many ways. So not every advocacy of free will would say something like a human being is a being of self-made soul. Part of what that means for Ayn Rand and why she's formulating it like this is that what she's saying is you have fundamental control over your life. So the, the power of choice that a human being has gives him or her fundamental control of what you'll become as a person. And the reason she thinks that is her theory of free will is that you have a choice to think or not, that you have a choice to be rational or not. You have a choice to put yourself on a quest for knowledge, for understanding or not to do that. And that if you make that fundamental choice and if you make it consistently in your life and through your life, what you become as a thinker. And you become not a product of your environment, but of someone who thinks about what is present in your environment, in your education, your schooling, what your parents are telling you, what your friends and and acquaintances are telling you. And you process everything. And you think about it rationally. And you think about what's true and what's false about what people say and what they hold and what they believe, and what's good and what's bad. And you're constantly thinking and evaluating And if you do that, you're in fundamental control of the ideas, of the thoughts, of the values that you're making, in effect, part of who you are, of what is going to guide you, um, what's going to, if we put it kind of more of some things we've been talking about in this podcast, you make it part of your subconscious. And then these are things that will occur to you when thinking and when taking control of your life. And that's the sense in which you build your own soul. If you're a thinker, you build your own ideas, your own values and how they're embedded in you and are going to inform and shape all your decisions and all your actions. It doesn't make you determined by them but they form then the context in which your further thinking and your further living happens. And that's what she thinks that that's the kind of control you can exert in your life. Not everybody does. But that's what the power of choice gives you the ability to exert that kind of control in your
0: life. Yeah, and I, th- I think that when you conceive of the control in that way, it becomes clearer why this isn't an ex nihilo self creation. You're born in a certain environment, you're born with a certain kind of genetics, um, but both of those give you this capacity uh, for rationality. Uh, it's then a capacity that you are the one who has to choose to actualize or not. And of course, different people in different circumstances are going to be doing that in different ways. Um, But there's still a difference they can make within their circumstance uh, as to whether they're going to become a more active thinker or a more passive thinker, for instance. Um, And we we had a question that came in on Super Chat that uh, touches on this a bit. Somebody asked, do individuals who have ADHD or other psychiatric diseases have volition given their lack of ability to focus and can drugs or caffeine enhance or free will? Um, thank you for that super chat donation. Um, the, the, I mean, this speaks to the fact that yes, people are born with different brains and are subjected to different influences in their environment. I don't think that the fact that people can have psychiatric conditions of uh, 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 certain types uh, means that they have no free will in the sense that we've just discussed. Now, if you have a bad enough mental disorder where it, it basically uh, makes it impossible for you to connect to reality, then I think, yes, they, there's a kind of diminished capacity. Uh, and that can then um, that can then raise interesting questions about whether you can be held responsible for your actions. But uh, if we're talking about something lower grade, uh, then people, I think, say who have ADHD, they still have the ability to manage their mind to the extent of their ability. They can. There's better or worse things they can do with their mind. Um, one of the better things that uh, they might do, for example, is to is to seek medical help uh, in order to you know get better at uh, attending to tasks. And there are drugs that they can take, but that's a, itself a choice that they have to make. Um, do you have further? Thoughts on that type of example?
1: Let me say something about some of the other examples. So caffeine is brought in as and can drugs or caffeine enhance our free will? I don't think of it as enhancing our free will, but can they have and do they have effects on your mental operations? Yes, definitely. So take caffeine, something that uh, most adults are familiar with. I have weird reactions to caffeine. I don't drink coffee in the morning. Um, and I don't even like the smell of coffee in the morning, it gives me a headache. Does that interfere with my free will? That doesn't enhance it, but does it... Not in the fundamental sense that I still have a a choice to think or not, but it affects the efficacy of my thinking. It's harder to think if you've got a splitting headache. And so I can try to think about it. I got some work to do and so on, but it makes it much less productive. That's the reason I don't drink coffee in the morning because it gives me a headache and that makes it it the thinking process less effective i drink caffeine sometimes in the afternoon and i have a, it I, I know i'm weird like this it, it, the smell doesn't bother me anymore and i drink it and it that can if i'm tired and i've got something to do yes it can again i don't think it affects the fundamental choice that i can think or not but it affects the efficacy of the thinking process when i've decided to think and this is the People, the, one of the reasons people drink caffeine, but you have, so you have to distinguish between the effect on the fundamental choice and it's uh, mental life and, and human life is a whole series of choices. And so it's a choice to think is to take fundamental control over the processing of your mind, but then there's all kinds of choices. What are you going to do? And if I have a splitting headache, I'm much more, much less likely to decide I'm going to work on something important versus maybe I'll do some chore that doesn't take too much mental effort uh, because I have a splitting headache. And that's again, a choice. It's not the fundamental choice, but it's a choice. I don't know how you'd get by without coffee. Um, We're almost
0: at a time. I wanna take one last question that I have something brief but helpful to say. And that's somebody who asked from Zoom about uh, our thoughts on soft determinism. And I'll just say very briefly, that uh, this is the view that there's a sense in which we have free will, or there can be a sense in which we have free will, even if determinism is true. Uh, And it's a very popular view, sometimes called compatibilism um, among uh, contemporary academics who think about this. Um, And the reason, and it sounds like a paradox, it sounds like an an impossible contradiction, I think to most people who hear the idea for the first time. Uh, The reason that uh, philosophers are able to uh, play these mental gymnastics, and they've been doing it for thousands of years, is through means of a kind of verbal redefinition of the concept of free will. If instead of thinking of free will as the uh, capacity to be the source of your own actions and the uh, having the ability to do otherwise, if you simply define free freedom to mean something like you're able to act on your desires, and that's a s- simple version of it, well then, yeah, Determinism could still be true. You're able to act on your desires if you're not in jail, if you're not a prisoner, if you're not a slave. uh, Your desires might themselves still be determined. That's the idea of soft determinism or compatibilism. And I'll just say briefly that I don't think it works because the definition of free will that it has to use is not really what I think anybody means by the kind of freedom that we've been talking about today. It doesn't involve that robust... Uh, set of alternate paths that you can take in life Um, and philosophers have uh, been subjected to countless numbers of counterexamples over the years to the definitions of freedom that they've given in line with this compatibilist idea and in one of the articles that I'll I'll reference in a moment there are footnotes where you can read more about this debate. Um, Any thoughts on that one Ankar?
1: Yeah let me just say one quick thing since we've said a lot of things where we disagree and kind of disagree pretty vehemently with Sam Harris. He's good on this, that he thinks of soft determinism as it's just muddying the waters. And I think he's right about that. I agree, I agree. He's he's, he's willing to
0: take the idea of determinism all the way to its, uh, almost all the way to its logical conclusion. But we should we should start to wrap up. And I'd like to do that first by sharing some resources on uh, things that you can you can read or listen to to follow up on some of the ideas that we have discussed today. Um, I'd first like to recommend that people check out the entry in the Ayn Rand lexicon on the concept of free will. We've at various times today been invoking Ayn Rand's ideas about free will, free will as the choice to think or not to think, which is a choice about whether to engage a certain mental processing, not a choice about content. Um, this is a brief web page that gives brief excerpts from different places where she's written about this. You can go to courses.aynrand.org lexicon free will for more. I would also like to recommend a short talk by Ankar uh, that uh, unpacks that theory. It's called Seize the Reins of Your Mind. It's on ARI's YouTube channel. Uh, you can get there directly if you go to bit.ly slash seize reigns. Uh, and then a moment ago, I mentioned an article where I have some footnotes that are of interest. Uh, it's also the article where I discuss the Libet experiments. Um, this is one that's uh, directed uh, r- uh, directly toward Sam Harris's style of arguments. And I talk about some of his arguments in the article. It's called Why Champions of Science and Reason Need Free Will. And you can find that if you go to bit.ly champions free will. Otherwise, it's something we published on our publication, New Ideal. I will also mention uh, that next week on our podcast, uh, there will be, uh, sorry, a second. next week on our podcast, there will be a conversation uh, between Keith Lockitch and Ilan Giorno on the topic of humanistic environmentalism. I should make a program note that this is going to be at a different time slot than usual. We usually have these at when on Wednesdays uh, at uh, 2 p.m. Eastern. This is actually going to be Thursday at the same time also like to remind you about an upcoming episode we're going to be doing where we're going to be taking a miscellaneous general philosophical Q&A. That's on May 5th. So if you'd like to have one of your questions considered for that, uh, please just send us an email to newideal at org. That's the same email that we use for all of our inquiries about the, about the podcast, but we'll be specifically looking uh, for general Q&A questions there. And yeah, if you have thoughts or questions about some of the issues that came up today, or you have suggestions for other topics that we might pursue for future episodes, please send us an email to newideal at aynrand.org. So um, thanks Ankar for uh, uh, going through some of this uh, Sam Harris material today. I know this is a topic that a lot of people had questions about. We didn't get to get through nearly even half of them. Um, Sorry that we couldn't get to that. Thank you for those of you who sent in donations through Super Chat. Uh, we hope that you can we can answer some of your questions in the future.
1: Yeah, and that and that Q and A on the fifth is a good time to we could take up some of these because um, some definitely are interesting that we weren't able to get to. Agreed, agreed.
0: All right, thanks, Ankar. Uh, talk to you later, and you. I will see everyone else in future episodes.
1: Bye bye. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you
2: hear, leave us a review, share with a friend and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.